Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 11, and this is the Living the Word Bible podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. I don't know about you, but now that summer's over, that invitation to rest is really calling to me. Come to me, Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and, your, and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Such a great promise. And with me now to help us find that rest is the Bible study evangelista, Sonia Corbett. Sonia is a dynamic speaker and author who is really dedicated to setting people's hearts on fire with scripture and the Catholic faith. But she also has a particular interest in sacred healing, including the healing of things that get in the way of us experiencing inner peace. Sonia wrote a series of reflections on finding inner rest for the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, and she also has a book called Just Rest that goes into the subject in more detail. It reflects on the experience of Israel in the desert after the exodus from Egypt. So, Sonia, thank you for joining me once again on the Living the Word Bible podcast. Absolutely thrilled to be sharing scripture with you, Sarah, again. I'm so glad to have you here today. And, you know, you've told us about your own journey on an earlier episode. I wonder, why did you find it so important to address this issue of rest? Oh, my. Because as I was coming into the Catholic Church, but just before God sort of launched me into public ministry as a Catholic, this was the lesson. And, and I kept struggling against it, and I struggled so hard against it, in part because I felt like I was missing this promise that he had promised me. And so I was trying to push toward, you know, that promise. And he just kept resisting me. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept saying, I want you to rest. And I'm like, I'm not tired. I'm not tired, Lord. I, I mean, we've been we've been not doing anything for so long. I mean, what when are we actually going to get busy? But he showed me very clearly that I didn't understand his perspective on what rest is. Hmm. And I just thought it was physical inactivity. And Mm -hmm. that's part of why I was kind of struggling against the idea. But he showed me pretty clearly that, no, that's not what I mean at all. (laughs) I mean, rest in your thoughts and your emotions and, and your body and your soul. Hmm. And that was pretty much the lesson. And, and it, because he connected it to my promise, if you don't learn this, you won't last long in ministry. Hmm. Because he connected it with that, I, I was willing to listen. Well, tell us first, before you launch into those different lessons that you learned, um, give us a little background about the Hebrew Sabbath. Um, I know we read about it in Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, even though it's reflected throughout the Bible. I know that you connect rest with Sabbath. You talk about that inner Sabbath that we can get. So what is that law of the Sabbath to Israel? All right. So that was actually the very first thing that he started with me on, and and that's part of why I understood the the idea of rest to mean physical rest. And I took him literally. And when the scriptures are clear about keeping Sabbath and, and what was interesting to me about that in Exodus, and then also in a, our text passage in the book of Hebrews, which we'll get into in a moment, but the whole idea of Sabbath always to me meant worship. Hmm. And, 
when I got to really looking at how God lays it out, especially in the Ten Commandments, he doesn't really even mention that. What he talks about is rest, physical rest. But what I what I noticed there, because of other things in other places and the commandment to keep the Sabbath and to worship and the Sabbath keeping, which was two things. It was two things that were inseparable. So the idea of worship, but also the idea of rest so that if you don't worship, then you haven't rested on the Sabbath. And if you don't rest, then you haven't worshiped on the Sabbath. So those two things went together inseparably. And what I realized is that as a Baptist, we didn't rest on Sunday. That's when Hmm. we were really, really busy. (laughs) You know, we did Sunday school and we had preaching and then we, you know, we would come home and get a meal and then we would have deacons meetings and, and women's ministry meetings and choir practice and Bible study again, and then night church and, and all that stuff. And, and I loved it. And so when God kept saying to me, I want you to rest. And and I kept saying, I'm not tired. I love this. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do more. He just kept pointing out the commandment to physically rest. And so I took him literally and I started clearing out everything in my schedule. That was about the time this, this whole lesson sort of came to me as I was coming into the Catholic church. So I had stepped away from any sort of Sunday church, except for just the preaching part. I was starting to feel the rest (laughs) of just not having so much to do on Sunday and then as I sort of relaxed into that and, and started keeping it more carefully, this commandment to physically rest, that's when the other lessons started to come. Because as you're physically resting, what happens is your thoughts go crazy and you're, that brings up emotions and that brings up memories and that brings up all this stuff. And I, I, that's when he started to point out, no, you're not at rest at all. <laughs> But the Sabbath keeping is necessary. And in fact, when God's people didn't keep the Sabbath the way they were supposed to throughout their times in salvation history, they fell back into slavery over and over. So it's a, it is a principle and it's part of natural law. And if we don't keep it, we suffer for it. For those who don't know, explain what were those Sabbath laws? What did that mean, keep the Sabbath? So to keep the Sabbath, it was just basically two things. I'll just make it very simple. So it was worship and rest. So they were consecrating their whole week. It was a way of keeping time with God in a, you know, a simplistic sort of term. And they were meant to consecrate or set aside that day as part of the covenant that they had with God. God gives himself to his people and they give themselves to God. So it was a a way of keeping covenant with God, which was also a witness to the surrounding nations. And it consecrated their time so that all of the work of their week sort of culminated in that final day of the week, the Sabbath. They made an offering to God of all that they had done for the week. And so for us now, we don't keep Sabbath because we're not Jewish. We keep Sunday Uh, according to the apostles, but it's the same principle. So we're consecrating the week of work and committing the next week to God. And the catechism tells us that our Sunday 
is the kernel of the whole liturgy of the year. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of the pivot around which all of our liturgical time circles. So it's it's as much a principle now as it ever was. And it and it has to be because it's part of natural law and God said it had to remain perpetual and so the church keeps it perpetual in Sunday keeping. I love the way um God taught the Israelites in such a tangible manner. You know, he had them collect manna for six days and then to save enough on the last day to have the seventh so that they wouldn't be able to, you know, they wouldn't be able to work. There was no food available on Sunday unless they had gathered it ahead of time. But he told them to keep his rest on that day because he worked for six days of creation and then he rested on the seventh day. So in a way, our resting is not only being with him, it's being in his image. It's sort of being restored in the image of God to to take off that seventh day of rest. Beautiful. You mentioned a little bit ago about Hebrews, a verse in Hebrews, and maybe you'd want to introduce that because the author warns Christians not to be like the generation of people after the Exodus who failed to enter into God's rest. What what did he even mean by that? Did he mean they failed to keep the Sabbath? What did he mean they failed to enter God's rest? Well, that was the whole question. <laughs> that was the whole question for me. So the the passage that he used was Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through the end of the chapter, and then chapter four um, through verse 13. So that whole passage, I was reading it and I just felt that God was really using this passage on me when he says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And I was thinking, what? I mean, it, it struck me as so I was so shocked. I, I said, Lord, how can you apply that to me? Because I knew he was. I knew he was applying it to me. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And I thought, how in the world can he say that to me? Choir practice, Bible study, <laughs> mission trips. I mean, I was involved in everything. How can you say to me, I have an evil heart of unbelief, you know, or that I was in danger of it? So I'm looking at the the passage and I'm trying to determine what is it about what happened back in the Exodus, which is who the the whole passage is about the Exodus. And as you said, the people's failure to enter into the promised land, which was called the promised land or the the land of Sabbath rest. (laughs) So it was a literal rest from their Exodus, their journey through the desert. And it was It was called a Sabbath rest because the word Sabbath means rest. So it was a promised land of Sabbath rest and they didn't make it in. And the way the passage reads, it's almost like God prevented them from going in. But when you when you go back to the original story, what you discover is it's not that God prevented them. It's that they weren't capable. They weren't capable of going into the promised land because they hadn't learned the lessons that God was trying to teach them in the desert. And as I saw that, that's that's when I realized that's why he's saying, beware of an evil or a sick. It means sick, a sick heart hmm. of no faith. An evil heart of unbelief means a sick heart of no faith. And so you have to understand what he's trying to say about faith, too, because it's not a head knowledge. It's not the catechism. It's not a deposit of faith. It's not the the stuff, you know, the facts that we know about our faith. 
And even James says that the that even the demons believe mm-hmm. and they they tremble, but they don't love what they know. So it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of real trust, trust in the desert in particular ways that only become clear as you study the whole Exodus. And he, he says in verse 10, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And I was thinking, Lord, are you saying I'm going astray in my heart and I don't know your ways, which was shocking to me. I mean, I had spent decades studying about God's ways, but it was clear because he kept saying to me, I want you to learn how to rest. And and I kept saying, I'm not tired. And, And then it started to become clear. You don't really know what rest is. Mm. And here's how I'm going to show you. I'm going to put you in the desert, which is what he did between my leaving the Baptist church and coming into the Catholic church, total desert, total deprivation in, in almost every area of my life. It was, it was dry. It was lonely. It was painful. It was scary. And the more those feelings came up, the more I started to learn about what he was trying to teach here. The promised land of Sabbath rest includes our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, and our souls. And that's what he's really after. When when he says in the mass, my peace, I give you my peace, I leave you. That is an absolute promise, but we have to guard it Mm. and we have to know what he means by rest. And when we don't know his ways, we can't enter the rest. We can't because we don't understand what he's doing. It is lonely. It is painful. It is scary. It's all of those things. And we resist it rather than leaning into the desert and the lessons that he's trying to teach us about deprivations and about trusting him in those deprivations. So that's what he's getting at. And so we have to know three things about his ways, the way of the desert, the way of repetition, and the way of the word. Those first three principles outline the whole passage and the whole template. Paul says elsewhere that this Exodus story is a template for every Christian life. So if we don't get this, we may not make it to the final Mm -hmm. promised land of rest, heaven. We could forfeit it altogether. And that's the warning that he's trying to say there in Hebrews for all of us. Wow. Uh, you know, I think about the the Israelites. They certainly did know his ways. They had observed them, but they didn't trust him. They did not trust that he could take them through the desert and into that scary place. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in that place often. You know, I think I know God. I'm following him. I'm going to mass. I read my Bible. I pray. And yet it comes to life and I'm in the desert or facing the mountain. And it's scary. It is scary. You have three things there, the way of the desert, the way of repetition, and the way of the word. Tell me about those. The first way is that God works through the desert. He promises them before he ever rescues them from Egypt, he promises them this land flowing with milk and honey. And the very first thing he does is put them in the desert. So I don't know about other people, but but when I find myself in a place like that, and especially in that time in my life where I had a promise from God, I had a promised land and he had promised me this. And I was standing in the middle of a desert going, where is my freaking promise? <laughs> did you, I mean, and that's what they did. They accused God over and over and over again of dragging them out to the desert to kill them there. 
you know, and I was saying the same thing. I was saying, what are you doing? This is not what you promised. This, this place doesn't have anything, much less some sort of land flowing with milk and honey. I, I mean, it just feels like God is, he's, he's lied to us, mm-hmm. you know, and honestly, that's kind of strategic. <laughs> he does that in order to pull up the fear, the fear of, I'm not going to have what I need. I'm not going to be protected. I'm not going to have the promise that he promised me. All of the suspicions that go with trying to trust God and learning to trust God, all of that stuff comes up when we're in the desert and we don't have, we, especially immediately, they didn't have water. They didn't have food. They didn't have, or they thought they didn't have good leadership. They got bored. They started looking for distractions, which we all do when we start to find ourselves in these sorts of situations. So the first thing to know is that it's normal. God puts us in the desert in order for us to learn these lessons. And the way of repetition is the fact that we get the same lesson in a different way over and over and over again until we learn it. (laughs) So their lessons were on God's timing and his provision and his protection. First, they had no food. God provided food. Then they had no water. Then God provided water. And he did so miraculously, but they, they still didn't learn. They, they didn't learn to simply ask and wait on God to provide it. Instead, they complain. And the more they complain, the more they get what they don't want. Mm-hmm. Instead of thanksgiving, they complain. And so we see a principle there that the more negativity you wallow in, the more you get. <laughs> negative stuff in order to help you learn to simply ask and wait, ask and trust. That's, that's really what they're learning. So the way of repetition is simply that God gives you the same lesson, the same theme over and over and over again until you learn the lesson. Mine was this whole idea. I had a, we had experienced a couple of church splits and I was very, very angry and I was also angry that I, I felt like God was reneging on, on his promise. And so was he really trustworthy? And was I going to get what he had promised me? And all this stuff started coming up to the surface. And what you see in the Exodus is the same thing. The people had been in bondage for almost 500 years. And when they don't have water and they don't have food, all that, all that fear and suspicion comes up. You know, are, are you just going to put us back where we were? So the way of the desert is God uses the desert to teach us to trust. The way of repetition is he continues to teach the same lesson until we learn it. (laughs) And the way of the word is that he uses his word to teach us as we're, as we're learning. So he's constantly sending, he sends the law and he sends Moses and, and, here in this passage in Hebrews, it's a quote from Psalm 95 and Psalm 78 and Psalm 106. And then that is a summary of what happened in in Numbers and Exodus. So God repeats this lesson over and over and over again for us, he says, so that we can learn from them. He repeats it through the scriptures in both testaments. So he's emphasizing the importance of this lesson for all of us over and over and over again. So those are the three ways when he says they shall not enter my rest because they don't know my ways. Those are the ways we got to know the ways that he's, he's going to work in the desert. We have to have the desert in order to learn how to trust him. 
we ha- we need to recognize the pattern in the lessons that he's teaching us because that's where he's trying to heal us. And then we need to be in the word every day because if we're not in the word, we're not going to know what the lessons are. Sounds so simple. <laughs> it sounds simple. But I love how it puts a different perspective on what we're going through. It kind of enables you to get your eye off of the problem and say, okay, God, now what do you want me to learn? Exactly. Because if we don't have that perspective, we get we get weighed down in this fear. And that's the whole point, really. He, because he, he talks about how this fear, it's their fear that causes them this evil heart of unbelief. It's our fear. Fear causes the heart to be sick. It causes the heart to turn away from God because we're we're scared. But it's not an excuse. It's it's the point. Mm. We're supposed to be learning to trust. So it's the fear that's the real danger. Or the way we respond to the fear, because the fear almost acts like the desert. It turns us toward God. So fear can be good. It can make us flee evil. It can make us turn to God, but we can also let it rule us. And that's where the problem comes. Amen. Talk about those four things that you mentioned, um, learning to rest in our thoughts, in our body, in our emotions, in our soul. What about thoughts? You're thinking about things like what you were just saying, anxiety, negativity, fear. One of the really interesting things about that passage is in Exodus 15, where they they have no water and God leads them to this area called Mara. They end up naming it Mara. And it says that the people couldn't drink the waters of Mara because they were bitter. And so it sounds like the water was bitter. But one of the Jewish commentators points out that the the text actually means that it wasn't the water that was bitter. It was the people. (laughs) The people's bitterness caused that negativity to just sort of multiply. And the more negative they were, the more bitter the water was. So they couldn't Mm -hmm. even receive the water that God gave them in a refreshing sort of way because they were so bitter. They were bitter and they were negative. We see the same thing with the manna. They end up calling the manna worthless. (laughs) It's miraculous. And it's free. They don't even have to work for it. It falls from the sky. And eventually they get so bored with it, they call it worthless. It's just this constant negativity, which... I mean, we're all prone to that, right? But we have to really battle that because one of the things I learned in studying about the the difference between negativity and what the secular world calls gratitude, but what the Bible calls Thanksgiving is, you know, when Jesus multiplied the, the loaves and the fishes, we think that the reason that occurred, that miracle occurred is because of his prayer to the father, but it's actually the Thanksgiving it was his thanksgiving that multiplied the fishes and the loaves. And so we have we have this choice in the desert. We can either be negative because once our thoughts get started in that negativity, it is a quick trip downward. Mm-hmm. We know the biology of thought now, and we know that the more you entertain that negativity, the more emotion gets dumped in, in the brain. And once the emotion gets dumped, if it's, if it stays there within 24 hours, it becomes permanent. It becomes a permanent part of who you are biologically. So if you just stop it, if you just stop the negativity immediately, and it's not that we're, it's not that we're, you know, faking ourselves out or psyching ourselves out, you know, with positivity, it's that we're truly being thankful you know, thank you, Lord. Maybe this water's a little bitter and not as sweet as I'd like it to be, but thank you that we even have water, you know, that kind of thing. 
And the more we're thankful, the more we get the things we're thankful for. The more we're negative, the more we get negativity. So whichever one we're paying attention to the most is the one that gets multiplied is my point. So our thoughts are really, really important in stopping this cascade of fear because it starts in our thoughts. And most of us, what we discover in the desert is our certain pattern of negativity and fear. And that's the whole point. God, he, he allows our particular deprivations in the desert, whatever our desert is, he allows those specific to us and our woundedness because he wants that to come to the surface, start to agitate us and hopefully draw us to him rather than away from him because that's where the healing occurs. He starts to show us our pattern of negativity. Why are we negative here? What what is the memory that's associated with that? That memory is connected to the emotion. And that's how the thoughts and the emotions become healed because if we can go to God in our fear, he'll show us where the root of that is and it's usually rooted in a very early memory. So those early memories then he can start to pull up to our consciousness he can heal the emotions behind them. Healing the emotions helps interrupt the, the pattern of negativity that we have in our thoughts and our fears. And that starts the whole process of healing. It's, it's really all connected to that, that deprivation in the desert. It's reminding me of what St. Paul says in Philippians. You know, he gives kind of the answer for that. He says, be anxious for nothing. Well, that doesn't mean stop the emotion, but yes, you can bring a check to it and be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, which is exactly what you said. We can train our thoughts by actually physically giving thanks and bringing it to God instead of worrying it and focusing on it and getting in that spiral. Yes, because the more we focus on the negativity, the more we get. And it, it really is, I love that word that you use, training, because the, the word disciple means one who is learning a, a discipline, right? And so it is training and it's hard it's hard. It does sound very simple and it really is very simple, but it takes time because we have to retrain our thinking away from the negativity and fear to the thanksgiving and the the, the absolute trust. Yeah. God is going to provide. He says in that same book of Philippians, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. And so he will. We just have to, we have to just trust him. And that's, it's hard, but it's a training exercise. Yeah. Yeah. As they learned in the desert. This is a, a really, really valuable lesson for us Catholics because Catholics just tend to simply think all suffering is just meant to be offered up. Hmm. We're just supposed to offer it all up. Like there's nothing in it for us, you know, but, but if we simply offer up our suffering without cooperating with it, then we have missed the entire point of it. Part of what we see through this story of the Exodus is that their suffering was ordered. And this is not Sonia Corbett. This is John of the Cross, particularly with the scriptures here. Their suffering was ordered to their baggage, their woundedness. Our suffering is ordered toward God allows particular kinds of suffering because of our particular kinds of wounds. So he's pulling up the emotion, the memories, the thought 
patterns so that he can heal those for us. And if we don't cooperate by training our thoughts and bringing our fears to him, if we don't cooperate with them, then we miss the whole point and we just get more of it. So leaning into the desert is it's so important, which is why he left this whole account for us. It's so important to lean into what he's doing and and discern his ways and follow him through them because they really are very individual to each of us. You know, we we hear that God works everything to to the good for those who love him. And we would like to think that means that, oh, our, our life is going to be a bed of roses if we follow God. But he's even working those sorrows and the sufferings to our good. And like you said, allowing particular ones that will help our ultimate good, um, not just our eternal good, but also just strengthening us now, helping us to grow in trust and so on. Yeah. So what came up for me in my desert was God is going to renege. He is going to renege on what he said. And that suspicion and that fear, and it truly was a terror for me. And I I know that sounds, you know, exaggerated. and, And, you know, to anyone who didn't grow up the way I did, it probably is. But it was such a fear of mine that he's not trustworthy. Hmm. He's like my father. And when that came up, I was I was so sad about that, first of all, that I didn't trust him enough. But I was also really scared. <laughs> and he started just sort of pulling up the memories that were connected to that. How many times my dad had, had promised something and then as soon as I almost got it, would snatch it back because I had been bad or because I hadn't done something he wanted or it was always conditional on my behavior or on my pleasing him. That was such a painful, painful series of lessons in my own desert because I, it was hard to trust him through the way things looked because mm-hmm. they looked really bad. I mean, the desert there's there's nothing happy about it. It's it's just deprivation after deprivation after deprivation and you don't see anything on on the horizon. But what something I noticed in the prophets about the desert is that the desert actually transforms. God transforms the actual place that you're in that is such a desert into this beautiful promised land. So it's not really that we're we're walking toward it. It's that he is transforming the very desert that we stand in. He's transforming the sand and the aridity and the deprivation little by little into something plush and flowing with milk and honey and fertile, all of that. It, it it's shocking really the the process takes you know at least a decade if if we look at <laughs> how god works with his people throughout the scriptures sometimes you know for abraham 25 years it takes a long time but it is a promise and it happens mm-hmm. if we can just cooperate with what he's trying to to accomplish there in the desert but it it truly is terrifying and yet if we can just allow him to heal those memories and heal those emotions connected to that stuff in our past, get control of our thoughts, taking every thought captive, according to Paul, diverting your thoughts, according to him in Philippians, um, 
really trusting him for all of what we need, careful about gratitude and also forgiveness, because that that's one of those things that occurs in the emotional part, right? The healing of the emotions. We have that, that stuff from the past that really needs to be healed, but working with him to renew our minds in that, in that way and heal us leads to this health physically, mm-hmm. according to, to Jesus, where he talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. That was actually in the readings this week. The lamp of the body is the eye. And if the eye is single, then the body is full of light. And the church fathers talk about that eye being the spirit. So the thoughts, the emotions, all of that, if it's all unified, if it's not fractured into a bunch of pieces because of trauma and memories and and wounds and hurts and all that stuff, if it's single, if it's focused on God, if it's healed, then the body is also healed. It's also full of light. So it just follows. Yeah. And that brings you to the rest in your body because that, that is an issue. I mean, that is one of the pieces. It is one of the pieces. And we keep Sabbath with God by giving our bodies that rest and our minds even too. We we need that day of just pure rest. I, this is a discipline that I keep even now. I mean, he, he was very clear before I ever started in ministry. He said, if you don't keep this principle, you're going to burn out. Hmm. I was like, all right, Lord. <laughs> so I keep it even now. So how do you keep it? Most of the time I'm traveling on Sunday. So Monday, I don't do anything. Nothing. I watch British TV all day or I read <laughs> or I sit on the porch or in the hammock or whatever. But I, I don't I don't cook unless I want to. I don't do dishes. I don't do laundry. I don't do anything. I absolutely keep it and always, always, you know, go to mass. Mm -hmm. So it's just that that's something that our bodies and our minds and our, we just need that Sabbath. We need that rest. Our bodies need them, need it. And because it's part of natural law, if we don't keep it, there's, there's no way we're going to be physically healthy. There's no way we're going to be healthy, period. If we're not keeping Sabbath the way we're supposed to, that's a given. But even when we have that peace in place and we are keeping Sabbath properly, if we cooperate with the deprivations in the desert, God will allow all of that to, to heal the sicknesses and the even the diseases that, that we exhibit when we're not resting properly in our thoughts and emotions and our bodies. So we know now, I mean, you can just Google this, 80% of all of our physical issues have spiritual and emotional roots. 80%. Wow. Which says that our eye is not single. <laughs> our eye is not single. And so if we can cooperate with God, then he heals us thoughts, emotions, body, and soul. And that's the promise of the gospel. Yeah. Talk about that one. The human person is both body and spirit. And so he's not going to just heal part of us. Now, the body does age, of course, and it will die eventually, but the, the prophets are clear that, that God's promise of peace includes our physical bodies and that his people should be full of sap, it says, even unto their old age. Mm-hmm. And that, too, is part of the gospel promise, gospel meaning the good news, we are so short-sighted in what God wants for us. And we, first of all, I think that most of us have never even heard it. But secondly, we just don't believe it. 
Could God really want me healed in my thoughts, emotions, body, and soul? Absolutely. That's why Jesus came. That is exactly why he came. And it is a promise. It's the promised land of Sabbath rest. And we're not supposed to just look forward to it in heaven. Jesus said the kingdom is here. It is now. So we're supposed to be learning this stuff here in this desert valley of tears so that as we're walking with him, following him, our lives become more and more and more of that promised land of Sabbath rest, not just for us, but for everyone around us. Our healing contributes to the healing of those people around us and the whole world. And that's why the Bible is so clear that this story, this Exodus story is a template for every Christian life. We are not intended to simply look forward to heaven one day when God will make it all better. We're supposed to be learning these lessons now and experiencing this healing, this fullness, this peace, this Sabbath, inner Sabbath rest in our thoughts and emotions and our bodies and our souls. All of that is what Jesus came to save. Amen. I wonder if before we go, you can give us a favorite verse or passage, maybe even that one you keep talking about in Hebrews, which is wonderful, but that's related to what you've been talking about that we can reflect on a bit before the end of this episode. All right. And I want to just reiterate that part of the necessity, because he says, they have not known my ways and they will not enter my rest. So we have to know and keep his ways. And one of those ways is the way of the word. And that's where this passage comes in, in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Well, actually I'm going to start in 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, meaning the example of the children of Israel in the desert. Their disobedience prevented them from entering the promised land of rest. And then he goes on to say, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That heart includes the thoughts, the emotions, the baggage, all of that stuff. And so it is the word of God on a daily basis that gives us the proper perspective on what we're suffering that helps us to follow him through the desert, through the deprivations, through the thoughts and the emotions and the, the illnesses of our bodies that, that exhibit this fracturing in our thoughts and emotions, all of that. We have to be in the word of God on a daily basis. And we do that through the readings of the church. So the whole synopsis then is there. We must be diligent to enter that rest, that Sabbath, that inner Sabbath rest. We don't want to fall to that same example of the children of Israel in disobedience. We want to listen to the word of God because it is powerful and living and it will accomplish the thing that he sent it for. So we have to be in the in the Word on a daily basis. Have to be. Amen. Well, I thank you for that. And I would like to just read that passage now while everybody, to give everyone a chance to just think about it and think about how it applies to your life. Allow the Word of God to pierce into your soul as it did into Sonia's and speak to you into your situation today. All of us have different deserts that we're in and different fears and so on. And we ask that the Lord will speak to us and bring us into his rest.
So come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your help in entering the rest that you promised, especially if we're wandering through a desert right now and having a hard time trusting you. Help us. Help us to rest in body, in thoughts, in emotions, and mostly in our soul. We thank you for the example of Israel given to us in the Old Testament and for all of your word and the life and the strength that it brings us. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us grace that we need to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. And Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. So thank you, Sonia. These are wonderful insights, and I think you've given us quite a bit to chew on here. And I want to encourage people who are listening to read firsthand about Israel's wilderness experience. You can find that their release from Exodus, I mean, from Egypt in the book of Exodus, and then their wanderings in Exodus and also primarily in Numbers. But you might also read Luke chapter 4 and think about how Jesus behaved much differently in the desert and think about what he did that differently than they did that helped him there. Or as Sonia was reading from Hebrews 3 to 4, to reflect on Israel's experience specifically for Christians. So you can find her reflections listed in the index of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible under the title Inner Rest. Might be Inner Sabbath. Anyway, one of those two. Or you can get her book. It's called Just Rest, Receiving God's Renewing Presence in the Deserts of Your Life. So, Sonia, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I think uh, that that sentence in Hebrews is a, such an encouragement to each of us. We just have to be diligent to enter that rest. Let's do it. Do it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people reach you or find out more about your books and your ministry? Everything with me is on my website, BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Thank you. This has been Sarah Chris Meyer with the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to everyone in our Instagram community. At Living the Word Bible now has more than 1,000 followers. And to celebrate you, we are hosting a Bible-themed giveaway, just in time for your fall Bible study groups. We're giving away a free copy of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, a copy of the beautiful hardcover Living the Word Companion Journal, and a few other goodies from some of your favorite Catholic shops. For full details and restrictions, please visit our Instagram page, at Living the Word Bible. And please tell your friends, there's just one week left. The giveaway runs through September 13th. So until next week, God bless you as you read His Word. <music>